Hello, I am Razel Schusterman, and you're listening to episode 30 of A Positive Podcast, a podcast where we discuss ideas and concepts on our emotional well-being and how we can educate ourselves to be a better version of ourselves. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, or through Instagram at apositivecoach. If you've enjoyed any of the past positive podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter by making a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. It can be a donation as small as $1, $5, or $10 a month. All you need to do is click on the link in the show notes to sign up. Thanks for considering. In addition, if you'd like more information on how to set up a free consultation for positive coaching with me, Razel Schusterman, you can reach out through my website at apositivecoach.com. I look forward to hearing from you. In today's episode, my husband, Rabbi Nehemiah Schusterman, sits down with a wonderful, incredible person and family friend, Dr. John Guderson from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Guderson is part of the Chabad community in Pittsburgh, and he is a psychiatrist who has been in private practice for 27 years. Dr. Guderson talks about bipolar and how it's diagnosed, what it means to treat it, and the ability to live a successful life with this diagnosis. It's a fascinating conversation that will leave you more educated on a topic you may not know much about. I think you're going to find this conversation to be quite interesting. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. The topic that we want to focus on today is bipolar or manic depression, as it used to be called, and the name change, we'll, we'll get to that as a question in just a moment. And... While many of the podcasts on my wife's platform focus on mental health, today we want to focus a little, zero in a little bit more, drill down on this particular illness, even though I'm sure there are other components that all come together, and you can certainly direct traffic as far as the conversation goes in relation to that. The, the reason for this topic, obviously, many people struggle with this. Mm-hmm. People that I know well and love and friends uh, battle this, and you know, recently I read a book, um, which if someone is curious to know more about this, I would highly encourage this book. And you and I were talking before we started recording about this book. It's called An Unquiet Mind by Kay Redfield Jameson. It is truly a most beautiful and heartbreaking read about her own journey. She herself is a psychiatrist and she's spent her whole life battling uh, manic depression and her ultimate treatment with lithium and how she navigates her life through it. And it's, it's so beautiful in how well she describes it. You feel like you're with her on the journey, but it's also so horrible because you see how complex and painful the journey could be. So with that as a background, let's jump right in. And rather than me try to explain what is bipolar, why don't you tell us, what is this illness? Bipolar? <clears throat> also called manic depression, and we will talk about that. Bipolar, two poles, high, hyper, low, depressed. Most people, when they think of bipolar, they think of the high side of the pole, and that's what we call a manic episode. A manic episode, many people misinterpret and will tell me, doctor, My mood goes up and down and up and down. I get really angry, and then an hour later, I'm not so angry. I'm bipolar. That's not bipolar. That's not a manic depression. A manic episode, a manic episode means that somebody goes for a period of time, usually five, six days, where they have a reduced need for sleep, and yet they are have tons of energy. They have, oftentimes they'll go out on spending sprees. And it's quite amazing when you talk to these people in the midst of a manic episode where they look back on it, but they will, they will, they will literally go out and buy tons of ridiculous things at the Walmart uh, that they do not need. Uh, they have, again, a decreased need for sleep, hyperactivity. Uh, they can go three or four or five days in a row with, with um, just on a, on a real high, they get very involved in projects. They can get promiscuous, uh, hypersexual. 
and they also can start taking all sorts of risks um, because they think that they have special powers. In the more extreme manic episodes, the ty types of people we see actually who wind up in the hospital because they really get into some dangerous behaviors when they're in the midst of their manic episode. They start driving fast, they'll stand up on a building and think that they can fly, um, all sorts of things that they start doing. They get very, very grandiose. They can also get very, very paranoid. They think that people are moving things in their house when it's not really true, or neighbors are looking at them when it's not really true. Um, so all of these, they, when you talk to somebody who's manic, they go, they have what we call flight of ideas. They go from topic to topic to topic. There's, they're tangential. There may be a little bit of connection between topic A and then they go on to topic B, but they just go like the ever ready, uh, the energizer battery, they just keep going and going. Um, and uh, they're easily irritated. Um, they have very little patience. Um, so in short, the manic episode, it's important to understand, has to last at least uh, five, six days. And oftentimes it'll go even for a longer period of time. So that's a manic episode. The depressed, uh, do you have any questions at this, at this point before I go oh, on? Or? Uh, well, I wanted you to go on, but I want to, since you gave me an opening, you will find that people who are really highly ADHD will also do that. But I guess you need to have all the symptoms or many of the symptoms. Right. ADHD usually is a very, very difficult time with focus primarily. And they don't necessarily have the other kinds of symptoms, so to speak, where they have the, um, the uh, you know, decreased need for sleep with hyper energy. Uh, where they go and become hypersexual. They usually, ADHD is classically a very poor, a very, very much of a lack of focus. Um, and that's, you know, obviously we see that in many young people. There is a relationship, we believe, between ADHD and bipolar, that there are a significant number of people, uh, kids who have ADHD, who then, as they get older, will have a, a manic episode and it could evolve into being bipolar. I think quite honestly, we don't understand it well enough because maybe there is what we might call bipolar things going on even when somebody is very young. And I think actually uh, the writer you talked about, Jameson wrote about her own experiences when she was very young. Um, and so, uh, but basically ADHD is really a, a, a focus as the main, the central issue, uh, attention deficit, whereas bipolar, a manic episode is a whole constellation of, of other types of things. Understood. Let me ask you a follow-up just to that, to that point. When I mentioned about ADHD, I, I was only bringing it up in the context that um, often people who are ADHD, I'll, I'll include myself, even though I never got a formal diagnosis, you know, you can really jump from idea to idea because your brain is going often, you know, at a thousand miles an hour. But to your second point, just for clarity's sake, I was going to get to this a little bit later on, but since we're there, I'll just see if I can button it up. Probably, let me say a sentence and tell me if this sentence is true. Probably people who are bipolar, you can look back and say many of them were ADHD. But it's if you're ADHD, it doesn't mean that you're going to become bipolar. I would say that's correct. Um, I, again, the question, the, the word many, somebody bipolar, that many of them were ADHD. I think some people might argue about that. Uh, there are people who uh, did not appear to be ADHD who wind up having their first manic episode in their 20s, late 20s, early 30s, or even beyond sometimes. Uh, but certainly there does seem to be a strong relationship between the two. Okay, Let, let's get back to that. Let's go to the, the, the other poll of the bipolars. The other poll is sadly severe, severe, palpable uh, depression. What we in psychiatry would call a clinical biological depression, where somebody, again, for a period of at least a week, every single day, many, many more minutes than not, they feel an overwhelming dysphoria, sadness. Uh, they can hardly, they, they have, little enjoyment in things that they usually would enjoy. 
Um, I living in Pittsburgh, for example, the religion in Pittsburgh happens to be the Pittsburgh Steelers. And uh, there's many people who really love the Pittsburgh Steelers. And um, if they find that they aren't enjoying something like that, that they usually have a passion for, uh, that's a prime example of what we call anhedonia, meaning a, a not having pleasure in things that somebody would usually have great pleasure in. Um, uh, you, um, they, their appetite changes. Usually their appetite goes down, but there are people who have depression who start eating like crazy. Uh, their sleep, usually they have um, a reduced sleep. There can be the opposite of that where they sleep excessively. Um, they can't concentrate. They feel utterly helpless and hopeless. And in the extreme cases, it evolves into a death wish. And then the real extreme cases where it becomes frankly suicidal and it can be suicidal thoughts and then sadly suicidal plans, uh, making a particular plan of, of how you're going to do it and then going ahead and, and doing it. And again, uh, I run a psychiatric hospital, which I, I've done for 27 years. And so we see this often where people have actually swallowed hundreds and hundreds of pills wound up in an intensive care unit at a different hospital initially. And then once they're physically okay, they'll come to our hospital. I've had people who have jumped from high places who somehow have survived. And after the orthopedic doctors get involved um, and the neurologists get involved, uh, then they come to our psychiatric hospital. We've had people sadly have tried to hang themselves. Um, so uh, many people go through sadness. Uh, go through a certain melancholy. Um, you know, the, the Tanya, uh, the book of the Tanya and the Hasidus talks about ways to combat that, which are beautiful. Uh, I, I view the Tanya as probably the greatest psychological book there is. Um, I love this, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, so we have a certain people who have melancholy, a certain sadness, um, and, but that's not the same as the you know, the real palpable biological depression. So when somebody was going through that and their friends or their, um, their spouse says, you know, just, you know, just get yourself out of it. Um, it's as biological, although again, I, there's no blood test to prove it, but it's as biological as uh, somebody who has diabetes uh, who cannot control their blood sugar unless uh, they, um, go to you know, take insulin or take some kind of medication. Um, and I've seen it so many times. I must confess, when I first started my psych psychiatric residency, uh, I wasn't sure if I was gonna buy into all this because my nature is to not jump to medications. Um, but I've seen so many times the glorious uh, power of antidepressant medication for these kinds of people specifically. Um, who obviously are, are lacking, whether we want to call it serotonin or something very, very real going on in their, in their essence. Um, in their brain chemistry. In their brain chemistry, correct. So, so let me uh, jump in over here for a minute. Because you, you just brought, um, brought up about SSRIs or, or, you know, and treatment for depression. How is there a difference in the dep depressive nature of the person who is bipolar and what we'll call, there's no such thing as ordinary, but the classic depression that is treated with a SSRI, a Zoloft, or a Prozac versus the bipolar depression? Or is it just that they have both, both poles of it? I believe for the most part, they just have both poles of it. The depression can, the depression can be very, very severe in both cases and, and have the same constellation of signs and symptoms. Um, one interesting thing is that when you have somebody walk into your office who has the severe palpable depression, you have to be very careful because if you hand them a bag of Prozac, say, go home, you know, see you later, uh, it's not a good idea to say, see you later, like in a couple of months. <laughs> you want to see them later, you know, very soon. In fact, I oftentimes will have them call me or I'll call them within a week, you know, a few days later. Because um, you have to be careful because 
logically, if somebody takes something to help their mood, to elevate their mood, it could swing them into a manic episode. And this I've seen. I've seen people when they take the SSRI, the serotonin antidepressant medicine, and they say, boy, I feel pretty good. And then the next week, I feel really good. And then the next week, doctor, this is incredible. You are the <laughs> great, you're the greatest doctor I've ever had. And I just bought myself a plane ticket you know, to uh, Australia. And here I go, because uh, I want to visit the kangaroos. So and the medicine can almost work too well. And it could flip them into a manic episode if they have the propensity for a manic episode. So you know, these things you have to be careful about. Somebody can first who has manic depression, you may not know about the manic side of them, and they may not know about the manic side of them. Until, until something triggers it. And something triggers it, exactly. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to circle back to that in a minute, but let me let, let me ask a few more questions just to kind of um, uh, flesh this out a little bit more thoroughly. Okay, so what's the difference between um, bipolar 1, bipolar 2, cyclothemia? Is that just the degrees of how intense the poles are? or Not for bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Bipolar 1 is both the significant manic and the significant depressive poles that person has. And they oftentimes have uh, many manic episodes. To clarify, there are some people who will have four manic episodes in a year. We will call them rapid cyclers. And there's some people who have one in a decade. So I can get to that more later. But bipolar one is both the manic and the depressive side. Bipolar two, is like you said, Rabbi Schusterman, bipolar two is not the full-fledged manic episode, but what we might call a hypomanic episode. Hypo meaning a bit less manic. And then they primarily have the depressed side, but because they've had the hypomanic episode, we define them as having bipolar as opposed to having just depression. So bipolar one is the mixture, having both, or you can have a manic episode and a few months later have a depressive episode. Bipolar two is a not so severe manic episode, hypomanic episode, and then you have the depressed episode and that the depressed is much, much more of a factor for them than the hypomania. It's an important thing for people to know because you can get into the very trouble that I just said. If, if they've had a hypomanic episode, they're very prone to going into another hypomanic or maybe even a manic episode if you start feeding them too much of an antidepressant like Prozac. Cyclo, cyc, cyclothymia, which you brought up. And mispronounced. It's okay. It's a, it's a less, less severe. When, you, when we talk about bipolar, when we talk about bipolar, when we talk about unipolar, which is one pole, which is, has to do with depression, that's what we call it, unipolar depression. When we talk about those, a very significant factor is these people don't function. They cannot function in the workplace. They cannot function in their social graces, their relationships, because they're so out of control or they're so severely depressed that they just can't have their functioning. Cyclothymia is a less intense mania, sort of like a hypomania that doesn't, that, and, and in that case, they still basically function. You know, there's, there's probably a lot of people out there who are actually functioning pretty well, <laughs> who may well have cyclothymia. Um, so again, it's less intense. Uh, you have to sort of it's a tricky diagnosis because you have to sort of really go into how they've been for the last couple of years and that they've never gone through a more than two month period of time where they were symptom free. Um, you know, they could go for a couple months, but then the symptoms come back after a couple of months. Yes, I think there's many people who can have these sort of cyclothymic episodes. It has to be the criteria is over a two year period of time. They can go a couple of months of having sort of being stable. 
but then then they then they but then they come back and they have these sort of waves of their mania or hypomania and dysphoria or some degree of what we call depression. These people are not as severe. They can function for the most part in the workplace, in have relationships, good relationships uh, for the most part. So that's, it's, it's a sort of a, like many things in psychiatry, since we don't have blood tests, it, it's a, there's a certain, I guess, what you would call subjectivity to it, because you're also basing it on, you have somebody in front of you in your office, and you're asking questions, and you know, you're asking them how things been for the last couple of years. Well, you know, many people don't even remember what they had for breakfast. So, you know, particularly I mean, if, if in there's some kind, in some kind of psychotic state, you know, whether sad or, or happy or manic, they're, they're not necessarily self-reporting really well either. Correct. And if you'll excuse me, the word, when you say the word psychotic, that's a whole different, that's a whole different ingredient. I mean, I can talk about psychotic as well, but I don't want your listeners to get confused that psychosis, um, you know, when somebody's reporting, you know, what is the definition of being psychotic? I mean, that's a whole. <laughs> Got it. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Good that, you, good that you're correcting me because um, here you went to medical school for many years and I've been practicing for for decades and decades. And here I am. I, I read a book and I feel like I'm an expert. Um, okay. So it's, it's, good, it's good to correct me um, because we do want everyone to understand this. It seems from what you said before that people have a predisposition to being bipolar, but without the right trigger, they may go their whole life and it'll never get exposed. Conversely, if someone I, does not have the chemistry for that, can, will, can they do something that will cause them to now have that chemistry, you know, drug use or, or, or otherwise? Help, help me understand that a little bit more. Sure. Um, Somebody who has the genetic makeup, and again, the problem is we don't know where it is in the DNA. We don't know the chromosome where it lies. We, we're trying, and maybe 100 years from now, with God's help, we'll understand all this much more clearly. We certainly know a lot more now in 2022 than we knew in 1922. The usual thinking is, if somebody's going to have a manic episode, they are inevitably going to have a manic episode. Just like if somebody is, it's built into their um, biology that they're going to wind up having, you know, some form of diabetes or or some medical condition. The people with even with the best of health, best of, you know, they, they can still wind up having these things happen. So the general thinking is yes, they are inevitably destined, for whatever reasons that Hashem may have, for them to have bipolar. For them to have a manic episode. Will it happen when they're 19? Will it happen when they're 25? There's not necessarily a trigger. Oftentimes there is. I've spoken with many parents and spouses who said, parents who said, if my, if my son had not used LSD during that time, everything would be just great. Well, there's a lot of people, you know, I'm a baby boomer myself, and even though I myself have never touched LSD, there's many people who used LSD back in the day um, who didn't wind up being bipolar, who didn't wind up being schizophrenic. Um, so the general thinking is that they were destined to have this manic episode. It may come about naturally, um, inevitably, or it may be triggered. In fact, I would venture to say, let's say somebody uses cocaine and then they wind up having a manic episode. So I would argue possibly the opposite. Maybe they were already in somewhat of an episode, but it wasn't, it was hypomanic, like I said. It wasn't a full-fledged manic episode. And they find themselves suddenly hanging out with a bunch of cocaine people. Why did they wind up with those cocaine people? Maybe because they were in a hypomanic episode that maybe that came first. They used the cocaine and then they were even more manic as a result of that. So I do think- And potentially the, the mania is what gave them the courage or the loss of the common sense to not in, imbibe in that, that drug. Exactly, exactly. Their judgment went out the window. 
their insight. And by the way, I should have mentioned that when I described a manic episode. One of the most striking things is when somebody is in the midst of a significant manic episode, their self-awareness, their insight disappears. I mean, you read the book by Jameson. Um, I would venture to guess, I've, I've, I myself have, have not read it in its entirety, but I, and I know a psychiatrist who has bipolar. And when he goes into a manic, and he treats people with bipolar, I mean, that's his specialty. <laughs> and when he treats people with bipolar, with, uh, when he himself goes into a manic episode, I say, you know, Joe, which isn't his name, Joe, you're manic. You know, don't you know that you're manic? And he says, John, I feel great. Don't bother me. You know, so insight goes out the window. Um, so that's one thing. I, I think inevitably they were sort of destined. Alternatively, somebody who doesn't have the genetic material or the predisposition, and they use, let's say, cocaine, or they have some episode that happens and they wind up not sleeping as a result because they're upset about something. And then they get a little bit hyper because we know that with lack of sleep, I mean, some people just conk out, but some people get super, hy super hyper. Um, you know, um, I know many people in the Chabad community sometimes can have all-nighters for certain reasons because they're saying Tehillim or, or, or whatever they're doing, and then they feel on a high. Um, so there can be there can be you know things that happen, but then it's just short lived. It's not like that they really have bipolar. It's just that what happened with the cocaine because of the cocaine or because of sleep deprivation um, or because uh, they're on a sugar high, um, you know, or you know something like that that they can feel sort of manic like. But it's short lived and it's goes away quickly and it's just induced, you know, induced by that. You know, there's people who will use um, stimulant drugs, you know, you know, like methamphetamine. We get a lot of abuse of that. And that can that can flip somebody into what appears to be like a, a manic episode. But you really to really diagnose it, you really have to do it in the face of them being clean, uh, not using anything. So let me ask it in, in the simplest form. If you don't have the genetic makeup for it, you can't cause it to happen. Correct. You can have a brief episode, but you can't cause it that you are definitiv definitively labeled as uh, being bipolar. And, and requiring the, the, the essentially the lifetime treatment that's necessary um, for that. Right. Okay, so let's jump into that lifetime treatment because she spends a lot of time in this book uh, discussing lithium, and I've heard you mention in the past in other settings uh, how lithium is the gold standard, and you know, I, I, I know she talks about getting her blood work done. T tell us, uh, uh, you know, tell me why a, a Tylenol or an Advil fixes my headache. I don't know that I, that I can expect you to answer that question, but what, what is the lithium doing? What is it fixing? Like we know the serotonin, SSRIs, there's, there's somewhere there's a, a space between the receptors in the brain, and it's connecting them as much as I don't really understand what I just said, but at least on some level, that's semi-logical. What is the lithium doing? And is there any other treatment? I'll I think I really with, asked, but I wanna hear what you have to say. I'll start with the uh, cop-out answer, which is uh, we, we don't know exactly how lithium works. Um, we, we have a lot of guesses, we have a lot of research, but there's a lot where we don't necessarily know what the exact mechanism of lithium is. We do know that in our bodies, we have certain kinds of excitatory neurons and we have inhibitory neurons. So the, 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 the and, and neurotransmitters, for example, dopamine. Um, so the, the, the thought is that lithium will turn down the dopamine so that you're not as excited and it'll turn up what we call GABA, which is another neurotransmitter. And so the theory is that lithium somehow works on these neurotransmitters to sort of help a person slow down and, you know, and, and increase the sort of calmness. But bottom line, you know, and, and again, I'm a trench, I'm a trench guy. I, I, I'm, I'm in the trenches taking care of people all the time. 
I trained at probably the most, the best place in the world at its time that got more grant money, more research money than anywhere in the world, Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic, as you mentioned. Uh, that was back in the early 90s. Um, the people who work there, they are much more on the cutting edge of scientific research than I am. Basically, since 1995, um, I love taking care of people. I love the, uh, the challenge and the intrigue and uh, let's say even the drama of working in um, a psychiatric hospital. I mean, most people, their thoughts of psychiatric hospital is uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And there is truth to that. I mean, you know, between you and me and your listeners, um, sometimes I come home and my wife will say, how was your day? And I say, oh boy, another day at the cuckoo's nest, you know, which is in a way one might say is a bit of an unkind thing to say, because these people are incredible people with a soul and connected to, to God and, and they're just struggling to get better. So I apologize for the use of the word cuckoo. Um, that being said, we don't, we don't um, really know exactly the specific mechanism of lithium. What you said is correct. Lithium is far and away the gold standard for treating bipolar. I have seen it so many times. It is much better in my mind than the other so-called mood stabilizers. Lithium, amazingly, and I see this with severe manic patients, amazingly, you know, you can slow somebody down. You can take away their energy, or not take it away, I'm sorry, God forbid. You, 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 can, you can diminish their energy so they aren't so hyper. You can help them sleep better at night. You can help all those things. But what's amazing about lithium is that insight factor kicks in. That awareness, like I just said, my friend, the psychiatrist, who would be unaware when, he'd be in, when he's in a manic episode, when these patients come into the hospital and they're on top of the world, they have been committed to the hospital. They don't want to be there. They're committed because they were standing on a roof. They were committed because they're at the airport ready to fly to, to Australia, like I said. They're committed because they've spent $5,000 on different kinds of socks. I mean, they're, they're committed because they're doing all these things and they're deemed to be dangerous in many ways. So doctor, I don't want anything. You're nuts, doctor. I feel great. Look at you. I feel much better than you do. You know? And so that's what they say to me. But when they get, when they take the lithium, and that's a challenge, obviously, to get to even to that point. But when you have them take the lithium, after about four or five days, doctor, thank you so much. I was really not in my right mind. It is so they, they, can, they can reflect and realize that they were not okay, even though they thought they were okay at the time. Absolutely. I've seen it so many times. And my staff, they just, they, with lithium, not with the others, not with the others. I mean, it can happen. I don't want to disqualify all the other medica medication treatments, but it's, it's really incredible to see the turnaround. Then the art and science is to get is to help them understand consistency, to continue consistency with taking it. I, I, I'll stop right now in case you have a question. There's all sorts of other things about lithium. You'd mentioned blood work and all that. If you want me to go into that, I will. I just maybe the audience wants to hear another voice right now. No, no, I, I do want to ask, and I'm you're gonna um, I'm gonna ask those questions. So let me throw a few questions at you, and you're gonna probably have to jump into that to answer those questions. So if lithium is the gold standard, and once the patient, whether they were forced to take it or they, I, I don't, I guess, I guess that's what ends up happening. They, when they're manic, they probably don't want to take anything, like you said, but once, they, once they're taking it and they're now stabilized and they're, they're in, in their truest right mind, what next? Obviously we talked about blood work. And you need to find whatever the correct dose. What is well, she describes in the book what too little a dose was. And fascinatingly, she says, she says, I kind of miss a little bit of that mania. She says, it makes me feel just a teeny bit better. I have a bit of an edge with it. But do people build up a tolerance to lithium? What are you looking for in the blood work? And then you mentioned that your colleague 
when he comes in that he's manic, but if he's taking his medications, why is he becoming manic? Does it stop working from time to time? Or does it does he stop taking it from time to time? You are correct. Many people, they like that edge. They like that sort of feeling of being a bit hyper. And I think it's great. I mean, the other book that she wrote, this, uh, you know, Jameson wrote, had to do with looking into history of all, as best you can, the people who have had manic episodes. Now, we didn't have the word manic back then, or we didn't have the word bipolar back then. So she does great research trying to figure it out. She actually spends a whole bunch of time of uh, expressing her frustration at the change of terminology from manic depressive to bipolar. She feels that it's it's dismissing the true descript description of the illness. But that's for another conversation. I'm curious if you have a thought on that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, but she hypothesize, hy hypothesizes about you know different people, writers who have had manic episodes. I mean, we talk about Edgar Allan Poe, we talk about uh, Tolstoy, talk about um, you know, uh, Virginia Woolf, um, uh, Van Gogh, uh, more recently, the actor Robin Williams, who sadly committed suicide, um, you know, all these people. They like to have, or at least she hypothesizes, or I would hypothesize, I guess, I haven't, you know, can't say exactly what she's saying, but, you know, yeah, they, they like that little bit of of, of high, and I don't blame them. I mean, to me, the beauty of being a psychiatrist, the last thing I, I want to do is take anybody's chayas away from them, anybody's love of, chayas, love of life, you know, their spirit. God forbid, we'd never want to take away anybody's spirit, but we want it, them to be functioning. They have to have their- I, I'm gonna interject a little bit, because I think you, you're touching something so, so beautiful and fascinating is, it, it, and again, this isn't a book report or a book review, but in the end of the book, she asked that question. She says, if I had to do it all over again, she says, without lithium, I would never do it. She says, but with lithium, she says, the colors are more colorful. Experiences are deeper. Sadnesses are more, more intense, but joy is more joyous. And she, she says, if I had to do it again, I would with the lithium to control things. So you're mentioning about highs because I guess what you're what I'm hearing is you're saying that there is an, a certain edge that they have. The problem is you can't go over the edge, and that's where the tough diagnosis line or or, or, or dosaging line is. Right, and that is to me when I see somebody who is loving life, uh, but their feet are on the ground, and yes, they've had a manic episode. You you try to find because dosage is important you try to find the right dosage of lithium so they can have the highest, the love of life, the energy, while at the same time with their feet on the ground also. And so what you do is you do do blood work and you check their level. Um, and But what's more important still is the human being in front of you. In other words, somebody can have a, a number on a piece of paper from blood work that may be way low, but if they're, have, if they're not manic, so I don't really care. Um, so, you know, it's a, it, it, each person so, is, so that, is different. So let, me, let me push back then. Why are you checking the blood level? Why don't you just have a good conversation with the person? Well, I do both. I mean, I, I check, I, if somebody's on lithium as a doctor, I'm obligated or I'm, I feel responsible to check their blood level every three or four months. The other thing is, you know, sometimes I want to make sure they're taking the full dosage. <laughs> and sometimes they come in and the blood level may be low. And then I begin to think, oh, oh I see. Maybe, maybe, they, yeah, maybe they aren't, you know, they're looking fine. They're looking great. And then I have to get into a, a, a conversation with them, which I have to handle sensitively with them because I don't want them to feel that I'm, you know, sort of barraging them and saying, ah, you're not taking your full dosage of lithium because you know, then they'll never show up in my office again. So you know, so it's a it's an art in terms of the whole sort of psychology. So I might say, you know, this is interesting. Your level this time came back, you know, lower, a fair amount lower than the last time. You know, and then I'll sort of pause and sort of see if they'll sort of pick up that thread. And you know, if I have a good relationship, they may say, you know, actually I did go down a little bit, or I, I you know, I missed a couple of days, and then that leads into a whole conversation. You know. Medication in psychiatry, there's, there's a whole psychology behind medication in psychiatry, which, you know, again, is where the art comes in as opposed to the science. So 
Um, but the, you, the, classically, I think many people can do well on a lithium level that is on the lower end of the normal range, and they can still do very, very well on that and uh, have their feet on the ground. What is the normal range? High. Normal range what, what, what's high, what's low? The number is 0 0.6 to 1.2. I mean, that's the, this is, you know, that's what- now we're, getting, now we're getting really into chemistry over here. <laughs> I, I, you know, forget it. I'm going to pull that question back. Um, if, if, someone is, if someone is doing that, they need to do that with their doctor, and I'm not going to pretend to even understand okay. that. But, okay, but so the, other, the other thing, just, just so people are aware, a couple other things to be aware of is besides doing a lithium level, we, are, we have to check other things because lithium, unlike almost every other medication, goes through the kidney. Almost every other medication goes through the liver and the kidney as well. But lithium is unique in that it goes through the kidney and it can affect the kidney. And so you have to watch very, very careful uh, blood tests which can reflect kidney function. You want to look at electrolytes like potassium, which if it gets too low and lithium sometimes can make potassium go down that has the potential to be life-threatening. I don't mean to scare anybody, but a responsible psychiatrist needs to look at that. Um, and the thyroid. Lithium, we've learned, can possibly have somebody uh, uh, have their thyroid not working as efficiently as otherwise. So these are very important things that any psychiatrist should carefully monitor. I do it every three months for somebody who comes to my office, and I do it immediately when somebody comes into the hospital. So let me ask you a question. If, if God forbid someone finds himself in that situation, what do you do? I mean, if lithium is the, the magical medicine and, and it's, it's, it's helping the, psych, the psychiatry piece of it, but it's damaging the organs of the body, is there no choice? You've got to pull them off and find another way? Correct. And that happens. We get people in the hospital who precisely that happened. Their kidneys started to go out of whack. They weren't under my care. You know, on an outpatient basis, um, and then the doctors sort of, you know, grab another medication to give them, and it doesn't work, and then they wind up getting manic, and they wind up coming to the hospital. Uh, first of all, it's very important for a psychiatrist to find the right dosage of lithium, because usually, if it's if it's a low level, like I said, on the lower end of normal, usually a person can go for decades doing quite well without it affecting their kidneys, but some doctors or whatever, wind up having higher levels of lithium and the, the kidneys can't get affected. Then you have a conversation with them. Um, I oftentimes will send them to a kidney doctor as well, who will know the science and the chemistry of the kidney better than I do, because that's their specialty. And then we, I have a conversation with that doctor, they're called a nephrologist, because sometimes people, the number on, again, the number on the piece of paper can show that their kidney functions may not be as good but it may not be that terrible once the nephrologist does whatever studies they do so that they could still be on the lithium. And I've had that. I've had people come to me where they went off the lithium because some other doctor told them to go off the lithium. They're a wreck. And then I consult with the nephrologist, get them back on the lithium, watch their levels maybe every month instead of every three or four months, and they do great. So... But well, let me yeah, you have to be careful because some people wind up needing dialysis and that's a whole nother thing. Because so I was, I was gonna ask you, you know, does a person build up a tolerance um, to lithium? But I guess I'm gonna ask that question. And then on the flip side, say from a kidney level, can you go your whole life with, do some people go their entire life safely with lithium? Yes, there are people who do. And as people get older, because- Is that the exception or is that the rule? They, they can go their whole life on lithium and do fine. I'm saying, but is that the exception to be able to go a, a, a lengthy distance or most of your life or all of your life on lithium? I would say if somebody truly has bipolar and lithium has made a world of difference for them, they can safely go through their life on lithium as long as it's being monitored very carefully. But the other thing I just want to say is that as people get older, people like me, people like you, you know, people as they get older, um, 
they don't they probably don't need the dosage of lithium that they needed when they were younger. Oh, that's so interesting. You, you can look at it and, and look the, at the, it. The mania settles down a little bit. Yeah, just like a lot of things settle down as life goes on. So the that's same kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, I, there's so, I have so many more questions, but but the time, time is starting to get away from us and I wanna ask you a few more, you know, I think really important questions specifically for the from community. One more quick technical question. And I'm kind of asking you to <laughs> report on yourself a little bit or on your industry. Um, is there a lot of misdiagnosis? There is, because a lot of doc. First of all, usually the first gate of psychiatric diagnosis is not a psychiatrist. Usually they go to their PCP, and the PCP sort of notices that they may seem a bit high, hyper, or they start talking about their moods going up and down. And if the PCP, you know, is able to spend time with them, you know, in these in, the, in today's world, there's a lot of a lot of corporations running uh, medical practices. They're able to spend time. They say, huh, your mood is up and down and up and down and up and down. I think maybe you could benefit from a mood stabilizing medication like lithium. And they, you know, but it's not it's not the true diagnosis because as right, I said at the enough. very beginning, you know, many people, their moods go up. And I, I mean, in the hospital, I get it all the time. Why are you here? And they'll say, I'm bipolar. Which again, you know, that's the way the world is. Because some people come in and say, "I'm OCD, I'm PTSD, I'm ADHD, I'm you know, I'm, I'm BPD, which is borderline personality." The lingo of, the, of today's world is everybody has all these initials all, all the time. And, and, I just and want to know have, why are you why are you here? Have, I want to. I want to and we have Google and, and and we're diagnosing ourselves. Right. I want to hear a human answer to the question. And uh, so that I say, well, what do you mean you're bipolar? Tell me about your bipolar. And then they say, oh, my mood, it goes up and down. You know, I can one minute be up and then the next hour I'm down and my wife tells me that's the way I act. And then I say, well, has it ever lasted for like five, six days? Have you ever like gone with little sleep and then you get real hyper? Have you gone on spending sprees? Are you promiscuous? Um, no, 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 no. I'm just, you know, last Sunday, my mood just went up and down. I'm bipolar. And uh, so, yes, it gets misdiagnosed a lot. And uh, diagnosis is the central, the most important beginning of anything uh, in, um, in uh, all of medicine and certainly in psychiatry. Um, and the other thing is, of course, to look at other things. Did they use cocaine? Were they drinking? Were they, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, do they have a thyroid, a thyroid that's working too fast? Um, an adrenal gland? I mean, there's all these things that need to be looked at to try to understand that could be behind rather than uh, it could be um, biological reasons that we can know that cause the manic episode that are mimicking um, signs of bipolar so, so they may just get that label right. would you say that psychiatric you know or i guess um psych psychiatric hospitals like where someone comes in because they're in deep crisis you know like like you said the insurance will pay for five days ten days whatever it is so they got to get them in get them out so if you could throw a fast diagnosis and throw a lot of, lot of drugs on them you can bring them down from wherever they were again I, we're, we're keeping this nameless so you're, you're not you're not ratting anyone out if, if you agree or disagree with me it is a shame that insurance companies who have their agenda they call themselves managed care i call them managed money and uh, they have their outlook on things and yeah they want things quick and they to them a, a concrete thing to do is to give somebody medication um, and you know it is a problem uh, having been in pittsburgh for 27 in practice and in, in, in hospitals for 27 years i, I know the the uh the usual suspects, the cast of characters who work in the insurance companies. And thankfully, I've had the privilege of, of, of having good relationships with them. And so I'm able to have patients be in the hospital for a more significant period of time. And I've convinced the insurance gurus that sometimes taking people off of medications is as important as putting them on medications. Um, but yeah, it is a huge pressure um, and a lot of psychiatric hospitals are revolving doors. Just get them in, get them out. And to me, that's a real shame. To me, a, a, a psychiatric hospitalization is a wonderful opportunity. It could be a watershed moment in somebody's life and really turn their life around. Right, the, the, I guess the challenge that I'm seeing though is, is that 
the only way to truly get a brand new crisp, clear diagnosis is to take them off of all medications, which then risks another episode if they're truly authentically bipolar in this case. That, that's one way. The other way is to really have a good conversation with people who've known them and, and do, doctors or psychiatrists who have taken care of them in the past and sort of get some perspective. Because okay, you have to be careful, especially in a, in a hospital, because people can get violent and out of control. And if you take them off of everything, you'll have a nightmare. Understood. <laughs> um, I, I guess you kind of answered this question. Can a person who is truly clinically diagnosed as bipolar, manic depressive, outgrow it? I mean, I guess, like we, you mentioned before, as you age, things settle down. It, it, do, do you outgrow it? Or if you got it, you got it. And we can wean it slowly. Excellent. Outgrow it or, 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 you know, I don't want to say outgrow it, but like, I know, for example, again, it's, it's hard, you can't even make the comparison, but, but I know that for, for ADD, ADHD, you know, exercise is an incredible tool. It settles you down, helps you folks. It's not the answer, but it's, it's one piece of the puzzle. Is there any other non-medicinal road to, to getting out of this? Well, there's always non-medicinal roads. Like I said before, there's some people who have four manic episodes in the course of a year, we call them rapid cyclers. They're cycling in and out of these manic episodes. Classically, being very depressed in the dark time of year, the winter months, and being more manic in the summertime, spring and summertime. Then there's other people. And by the way, I once had a patient, he came to my office and in February, and he said, I'm depressed now, but I'm telling you right now that I'm going to be manic when it comes to the month of May. I said, okay, you know, and sure enough, the month of May came and he comes, he comes in uh, wearing a tuxedo and looking out the window and he says, come doc, take a look, you know, see that, uh, see that BMW? I just bought that and I bought two others. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he knew it already, he warned me in February about the whole thing. But, but but to that to that story, you know, it's the same question I had about Joe. If he was taking his medication, why is he getting manic? Right. So he's, he told me in February, I don't want any medication. He, he, in other words, he was in the frame frame of mind of, you know. I, I'll, I, I'll flow with the with the with the, right, with the right. Yeah. We'll see what happens, doctor. We'll see what happens. So you know, then I'm in the I have the the challenge in my head. How do I approach this person? Because. Yeah, the main thing I want is for them to come back to the office so I can continue to try to help them. You know, so you know when you meet somebody the first time, it's a, it's a nuance and how to do it. Getting back to the other point, there's some people who have a manic episode once a decade, um, and so that the question is your question: Do you treat them? You know, do you give them have them take lithium for ten years when they're not going to have a manic episode? So, and they don't want to take the lithium. And you know, they're, they're, they're 33 and they had a manic episode when they were 23 and now they have another one. So what do you do? So then I bring the spouse in. <laughs> Say, can you live with them? <laughs> I give extensive psychoeducation to them. I said, do you have a thought on that? What? Do you have a thought on that? In other words, better to write it out maybe? Yeah, I say, if you really don't want medication, fine. I'm not going to make you take medication, but you have to be aware of you, the patient and you, the spouse have to be aware of the telltale signs of a, the beginnings of a manic episode. And if it begins, you have to nip it in the bud. What's the beginning of a manic episode? The vast majority of time, it's the decreased need for sleep. So when a spouse sees that their husband or wife is not sleeping very much and still has a lot of energy and that can go on for a few days call me can you quantify can you quantify the amount of decreased sleep is it one hour four hours ten hours what, usually what? they go they can go for maybe a couple some people can go without sleeping at all wow. for a few days in a row but usually it's two three hours of sleep at night and then they're hyper. I mean, there's some people who live life with very little sleep. They just have that way of doing that. that they but they're exhausted. That. They're exhausted and they function. But when they do that and they're hyper, so then we're more in the potential manic episode. 
So I say, look, the, the, the chances are it won't happen until you're 43. Okay, we'll keep we'll we'll keep meeting. You know, maybe once a year and sort of check in on things. You had a 23, and again 33. Odds are it may not happen until you're 43, but <laughs> keep an eye on these things. So that's, that's sort of the, that's the approach. And then yeah, I love to take people off of medication. I mean, well, me, it, that's, uh, that's, that's I was just going to ask you that, and you know, I'm running out of time, but I, but I have so many questions for you. So a person comes in with their first episode, and they're now on lithium. Is the thought, you know, maybe after a couple of years of stability, let's let's, you know, titrate them down a little bit and see what happens. Um, maybe they're um, one in ten year kind of people versus one in you know four times a year kind of people. Great, great question. It, it depends on where the patient is at, and depend. I mean, that that's a whole conversation. Every person is is different. Yeah, I, I'll I'll share. I'll share. I you know I live in in Pittsburgh. So when I was a rookie, I did have somebody like that, and 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 they were they were on the young side, and they really wanted to come off of the lithium, and I I had been taught in residency, thou shalt not take them off of the lithium. They had a manic episode, you know, don't do this, you know, this is a commandment, you know, and uh, and the mother was involved, and the parents were involved, and the kid didn't want to be on it, and all the, and I'm like you know my first year and all this kind of stuff, so. You know, wonderful Rabbi Dr. Tversky, you know, sadly passed away a year and a half ago. Uh, he's a psychiatrist who was living in Pittsburgh, or at least he was connected to Pittsburgh still. So they wisely called him and he said, okay, take him off of the lithium, you know, and have Gooderson give them a bunch of education about watching for sleep. And I learned a great lesson that day. You know, they really didn't want him on the lithium. He didn't really want the lithium. He had the one episode. You know, so let's you know, let's watch watch and see. And so that was a, a wonderful lesson that I learned from the from the master. And uh, so that's that's an excellent story. That's an excellent story. You know, listen. You know, it, it, it's it's clear that people who themselves or have loved ones who are dealing with this is you know we're we're talking about it academically and was you know somewhat with jokes here and there. But for those dealing with it, it's obviously. It's quite the journey and, and even the decision to go off and then risk another episode, you know, can be very, very complex and painful and, and involved. Um, we're, at, we're running out of time, but I have to ask you a couple more quick questions because I think, you know, it, it, one is I, we always need to leave off with hope. You're a psychiatrist in this hospital for 27 years. Are, do most of this, I, I don't want to, I don't want to force the question. Are there happy endings? Do people live with bipolar and have fully functioning, ha functioning, happy, healthy, wonderful lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually, you know, if you can enjoy, for enjoy working with people, I actually enjoy working with bipolar patients probably more than any other, precisely because they have that energy about them. Like I mentioned a few names already, some of the most creative people in world history are people who we are pretty sure have had a manic, if not hypomanic episodes. The sad thing is some of them wound up committing suicide because there wasn't treatment back then. But yeah, the beautiful thing about bipolar is these people can live incredible lives. They can be a fountain of creativity, do incredible things. They can be high powered business people. They can, you know, and, and so they, they it's, it's wonderful to see. And that's exactly what you want. It, it's, it's not, not a death it's, sentence. It's not a sentence at all. These people can be on fire and do great, great things and they should. So, you know, but they have to have the right kind of treatment and they have to stay consistent. And they, you know, that, that, that's the, uh, that's how it goes. So I, it's wonderful to see. When when it when it when it happens the right way. I have one last question, and this is loaded. So if you want to pass, you can pass. If you want, <laughs> if you, if you want me to edit out this question, we can get that done as well. <laughs> Since it's genetic, what are your thoughts of someone who knows that they're bipolar getting married? Let's we'll talk about the from community now. You pretty mm -hmm. much are. I don't know what the exact statistics are, but you're likely to have a child who's going to be bipolar, and you're putting them into that difficult circumstance. Now, yes, you kind of mentioned that, well, it could be managed, true, but but is it fair to put a spouse or a child through that intentionally? 
and, 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 and if that's a religious, spiritual, you know, that there's a, that's not just a, a, do, a question as a doctor, but you're from Jews. So what are your thoughts on that? It's a question I get asked all the time. I'm sure people call you with shidduch questions. You know, my, my, my child is dating so-and-so. We found out that their, their father had a, has had manic episodes. What, you know, what should be done. So yeah, the uh, I get the phone calls. This happens, uh, you know, pretty often. Um, it all comes down to, um, you know, the people on the other side, what they're willing to tolerate. I mean, I, I, what happens is, you know, I'm taking care of somebody who's had manic episodes. They're now going out. And um, so then I have the conversation with the other side. And then it really depends on what they are willing to tolerate. I tell them all about bipolar. I tell them all about manic episodes. Um, I get permission from my patient, of course, in terms of, you know, it's okay to talk about these things. Um, and... You know, and then, you know, it all comes down to how the other side looks at it. I tell them exactly what I said, that uh, people with bipolar can be incredibly high functioning, can change the world in wonderful things, and can keep their feet on the ground. And yes, there are the chances that their children could wind up having bipolar as well. Um, so, you know, it's a tricky business because I, I have a patient and you know how much to say and how much not to say. And if the shidduch doesn't work out, you know, then I've told this other family about somebody. So for my position, it's it's not necessarily a, a, an easy conversation to get into. Um, and uh, you know, so uh, I don't but, know. But if you, I understand you correctly, essentially what you're saying is is the non-bipolar side of the of this dating um, situation has to be fully informed and know that they're potentially going to be dealing with certain challenges that are going to possibly keep them company their whole life. And if they're informed, then they went in with their eyes open. Correct. Obviously, obviously hiding it is, is a crime. Right. Yeah, but never hide it. I actually stay away from the labels. In other words, I, I actually try my best to not say the words bipolar or manic depression because I feel that's an unfairness to my patients. On the other side, I have to be, I have to be fair to the people I'm talking to. So I talk about you know, the episodes that they go into. I talk about the fact that there could be a genetic connection, so that the children could possibly have it. I talk about the positives of it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very sensitive arena again because if the shidduch doesn't work out, then that becomes a, a difficulty. Right, but usually, I mean, I, I, I'd like to give people the credit that they would have the decency and the common sense to not, you know, if it doesn't work out, to not spread that information. We, we'd have to hope that. Interesting. Uh, what happens? What happens is usually the parents of the other side either say, "Oh, this is fine." If they totally freak out, that I get that the parents <laughs> totally start freaking out and they go nuts about the whole thing, you know. And then the debt it ends. And quite honestly, I turn to the. Uh, to the person I'm taking care of, and I say, you know, you might, you know, you might want to count your blessings because yeah, I don't know. You just you dodged a bullet. <laughs> you just dodged a bullet. It, it's a oh. difficult area. Okay, one. I think you're going to laugh at me, but I still don't understand why your colleague, who you call Joe, was having a manic episode. Did he not want to take his medication? He did not always take his med medication because he liked the little bit of high. Like Jameson, you you referenced Got the it. author of the book *An Unquiet Mind*. You know these people; they like the the little bit of the high, and then they get a little bit of the high, and then they say a couple of days later, maybe I'll take less of the medicine because this feels sort of good. And then insight goes out the window, judgment goes out the window. They're flying high; they're changing the world, and uh, you know they get the the you know, and so that's what happens. <laughs> All right, listen, it, it's, uh, I've taken more of your time than I, than I was allowed to. So thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating to me. And, and I, I really believe that it, you know, one of the upsides of all the technology and podcasts and all this stuff out there is that there's so much more information. I know that's a double-edged sword because people probably come to you telling you exactly what their diagnosis is because they spent an hour on WebMD. Um, <laughs> but, but I think knowledge is power and people need to 
at least get a basic knowledge and then then go to the professionals for specific details. So thank you for taking the time and helping educate me and, and all those who will listen to this podcast later on. Thank you, Rabbi Schusterman, and uh, thank you for all- At this point, you got to call me Nehemia. Yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you, Nehemia. Thank you for all the wonderful things that you and your wife do with these podcasts, uh, positive podcasts. That's wonderful, wonderful. Can continue from strength to strength. Amen. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm sure you have questions or feedback that you'd like to share, so don't hesitate to reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, or on Instagram at apositivecoach. If you'd like to not miss any of the upcoming episodes, hit the subscribe button and it will let you know when new shows are released. If you could take a moment to leave a rating or a review, it would mean a lot to me and would help others to find our podcasts easier. Thank you so much for being here. Wishing you a positive day.